Hello, everybody. This is a different version of Teachers Talking to Teachers because I'm talking to Anastasia and she is, where are you at right now? In Missouri. So she is quite far away from here and I met her way back in the day at uh, National Council for Social Studies and she was presenting some interesting stuff about the, um, I would say Ottoman Turks, but it was more just about Turkey in general, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, we did a presentation on the Ottoman Empire and Turkey, but we also did one uh, on the Balkans, which was, I guess, quite popular since it's a very little but very complicated region. So, uh, yeah, I remember seeing some of that stuff. So, um, so what got you into uh, the lovely education world as as we see it? Uh, well, I mean, for me, I guess I was pretty lucky. I mean, when most people think about what they want to do with the rest of their lives, I remember the day I was sitting in my college dorm room realizing that I needed to claim and, and take a major, and I knew I wanted to make a difference in the world, and so I thought of what had made a difference in my life, and it was my high school history and English teachers, and so then from there, I'm like, okay, well... You know, um, I felt like being a guest speaker, the, the long-term consequences of any kind of guest speaker, no matter how motivational they were, were only short-term and temporary. Politicians didn't seem to really make a big difference because laws were just made and then broken and then remade. And so teaching was the obvious answer for me. Then it was just a question of, do I teach history or English? And I decided I hated grammar and wasn't very good at it, so social studies was the answer. Yeah, I, I'm not good at English at all. Technically, in the state of Texas, by my old certification, because of my college hours, I could, te I could teach an emergency English class, which would be an absolute disaster in my life. Because I, I can't spell, I can't punctuate. I, I, I'm almost scared to email English teachers because I'm worried about what they might do and correct my emails when they come back. <laughs> So you decided when you were uh, when you were in college that it wasn't. I, I talked to one friend of mine, and she said she used to teach her little dolls when she was a little girl. And I'm like, okay, that's that's a bit much. And you know, no, I, I don't know anybody else that had that epiphany that early in life that they wanted to become a teacher at that time. So how long have you, uh, if you don't mind asking, to give away a little age thing about how many years ago was that? Um, well, I'm a non-traditional uh, major, uh, mainly because. Like, I feel like most social studies teachers were born rebels and don't like to follow rules because a big part of our job is teaching uh, citizenship and, and critical thinking. So I didn't take the traditional education route, um, mainly because once I'd made that decision, um, I had, and the reason I had to make that decision is because most of my undergrad hours were done and I had to choose a major. And so I started taking history classes. And um, I looked at, I had transferred schools at that point, and I looked at the curriculum for a history teacher, and you only had to have four classes in history. And I was like, whoa, that's clearly not enough to teach. I called the Department of Education at my school, and I said, hey, am I looking at this correctly? Because uh, it seems like you don't have to ver have very many history classes. And uh, the response of the dean of education at that school was, well, you're only teaching high school students, to which immediately I was like, oh, oh, really? Uh, well, I'm not doing your program because 
ahead and got my degree in history uh, and then went back and got a certification to teach um, through an accelerated graduate program. Um, so I guess that was, I don't know, 15 years ago. Um, a little, probably a little more than that, actually. But uh, it took me uh, quite a bit longer than most people to get my uh, education license. Mainly, also, I had taken an Education 101 course at that point, and I couldn't do it. I just, it was too mind-numbing for me. And I'm like, I, there's no way I can make it through a whole four-year or even two-year program of just education courses, because it hurt my brain. Yeah, a lot of that is um, is is the way it's going today, where where they're getting a lot of people that already have degrees and to go back and to teach. Uh, what what state was this that you got certified in? Um, well, I got my uh, degree and I went to college in Indiana. Okay, and you're certified, but you taught. I remember you told me you, you were teaching in Kentucky for a while. So, are you certified in multiple states? Yes. Yeah, so I got my uh, original license and originally started teaching in Indiana, and then uh, I lived on the border of Indiana, Illinois, and Kentucky, and so then I went to teach at a school in Kentucky, so acquiring that license was, you know, most states have reciprocal licenses, so that one was pretty easy, and so I taught in Kentucky for five years, and then um, just a couple years ago, I moved back to St. Louis, so now I'm certified in Missouri as well. Wow. So that's three certifications. Yeah, if, if you ever move to Texas, which I, I don't know if I would even recommend that, knowing you, uh, uh, you have to go back and take Texas history and pass that part of the certification as well. So you're part of the actual uh, full Texas history stuff, even though it's only taught here in seventh grade. Uh, but it, they still want you to go ahead and, and take that. Because I remember taking the social studies composite test way long time ago. Uh, there were questions about all the above. There were like 300 questions or 250. And it was it was a pretty good chunk of all the different social studies stuff. It was like a four or five hour test. I was, I was not excited about that. I, I, thank God I knew a lot about geography and government and economics. It kind of, you know, pulled my history out for me. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, I have a social studies composite, so I can teach anything from sixth grade all the way up to uh, seniors in high school, and I have most of the AP certifications for that kind of stuff as well. So I've, I've run the full gamut from running to uh, teach sixth, seventh, and eighth grade at private school all the way to uh, teaching, like I teach AP classes now in high school, I, and I taught that a while back. So when we actually met, I was there with a friend of mine, and I was teaching seventh grade world history, and he was teaching sixth grade world history at a uh, private school. Right, okay, okay. Well, I, thought, yeah, I, thought, I don't know if I would ever, uh, weren't you guys in Texas talking about taking Thomas Jefferson out of the, the history book? Uh, that your a couple years ago? Yeah, we've taken some stuff out of the history books, um, and now it's not really about what's in the books anymore. It's it's about teaching to the standardized test. So, like my wife has taught U.S. history for almost her entire teaching career, which has been twenty nine years as well. I think we were trying to calculate. I think she's taught the exact same subject for the class um, somewhere since the mid '90s. So she's had to add on presidents to the modern course because it still starts in Reconstruction. And what they do now with the Texas Essential Skills Test, 
is that they give you what you need to cover and they basically don't teach anything except what they're going to be tested on because as it is right now the kids have to pass an end of course exam in u.s history in high school to graduate yeah we don't have a we don't have an end of course exam in uh, right now in missouri i think they're talking about it but um I'm just not a big fan of any of the standardized testing measures. I came into education when No Child Left Behind was just beginning, and a lot of teachers, seeing what was coming down the pipeline from that, were retiring early and getting out. Um, my mentor, history teacher, in fact, um, when, when No Child Left Behind came out, left public education and went into the private school um, because he didn't want to be a part of that. Because, I mean, in my opinion as a teacher, standardized testing, it really just encourages, you, you can't really standardize a critically thinking class, English or history, since the, the most important thing that you take from that class is critical thought and questioning, um, something that is not easily assessed from a multiple choice test. So I do see the big push for standardized testing and being able to test whether or not kids can regurgitate information, a good assessment of whether or not they are going to be productive, contributive members of society, which is to me the good the point of a good social studies teacher is to make them good citizens. Yeah, but I talk Yeah, when I was teaching private school it was uh it was interesting because I was able to um I was able to go ahead and, and focus on certain issues and, and things that I really knew about. So, and as we split world history at the last private school I was at, which the other scary thing about that is you don't have to be certified in anything. Uh, you basically just had to have a college degree and an and interest in the subject, depending on on what school it is. And some of them are even lower standard than that because there's the regular. There's multiple different ones here in Texas, but. I I thought about it long and hard about if I wanted to cover a lot of stuff or if I wanted to cover a handful of things in, in more depth. And I, I chose the latter. And I spent a lot of time on the Islamic empires, on uh, the Roman Empire, uh, the medieval times, the Renaissance. And, and that was in um, some Chinese and Japanese history and things like that. The Mon- in the Mongolians, because that was the more interesting part of it. I, I did spend, that's what interests me when you had your display of the Ottoman Turk stuff, is that I did spend quite a bit of time with the Crusades and things like that in the Islamic world. So, because I found that my students were very, very ignorant to those kind of um, topics. And, and, you know, especially with the movement of Islamophobia coming on at that time. And it was... I was there during the election of Obama when all my kids were calling him a Muslim and I had parents calling him a Muslim and things like that. So it was, I really thought it was important to get that point across and not, you know, some of the stuff about the other little bit, bit, bit you know, little pieces of history that other people wanted to cover. Oh, oh, right. Well, I discovered you can do, and that's, that's the problem, especially with world history. Um, someone mentioned that to me just within the last couple months. They said, well, you know, in social studies, you just have to take a cues and you have to start, you know, covering, you know, start cutting things out, especially as you increase more and more modern history because history never stops. Our curriculum always expands every year. And I said, yeah, the problem with that question is, is once you start cutting stuff out, that becomes a political choice, you know, and that's the problem with standardized testing 
is that um, what's focused on and then, you know, in social studies where there often are not clear, uh, the important questions anyway, there's not necessarily clear right and wrong answers is how to assess them. Um, but I discovered you can teach quite a bit um, of, of broad uh, breadth of material um, in depth, but the uh, definitely homework is required in social studies and in my class because to do that, I need the kids to do as much as they can on their own so we can do more in the classroom. So currently, I have my classroom set up pretty much as a flipped classroom where kids do a lot of reading and maybe even some videos on their own um, at home so that we can discuss um, the important things and the interesting things in class. Yeah, do you have it set up on like a Google Classroom? Um, well, so I've been, I've been with uh, several different schools that had several different um, platforms. Um, so I'm currently, currently I just have my stuff uploaded into a Google Drive and I provide students links to my material from there um, until I get it all transferred to a nice one concise online place, which is what I'm supposed to be doing with my spring break, but uh, it's already Thursday, so that probably won't get as much done as I would like. Yeah, mine was last week, and I didn't. I, I didn't think about school at all during that time. Oh no, no, I was. That's not true. I, th- I was thinking about doing this. I was. I was chasing down teachers I know, trying to figure out if I could get them podcasted. They were all out having fun and good times, and some of that kind of stuff. So I didn't get that done. But I now that I have, I, I've been teaching human geography for five years now so i've been able to upload all that stuff on the google drive and i i use that i can flip classroom that some but i have everybody from freshmen sophomores juniors and seniors so it's a mixed bag on who's going to do the work um i have my ap psychology class like that and a lot of them i'll sit there in class and there's there's listening and and you know talking about stuff and I'm like, don't you have to get the, your, your you know, the, the reading guides that go along with some of the material? And they said, oh, I already did all those. Because they, they did them at home or did them in other classes. So I'm finding that to be useful but I, you know, for me to try to keep up with technology as I'm getting towards the end of my career. It's, it's, it still keeps me young, but it, it becomes a, a more challenging thing. And I, I realized when we were going through the flipped classroom at private school level, but we we didn't want to use it they were very secretive about only being able to use stuff on the school website through the school webpage because i i podcasted all my history lessons because i did it for eight years and so but it was all on the school website and i could not share that with anybody else so learning google classroom here in in cyprus has been a, a a very good thing for me and like the kids that miss stuff kids that aren't at school the ones that Every once in a while, we have kids that travel and things like that. So I, I, I see where that's become, and it allows you to cover more stuff and and uh, and have better discussions in class as long as they play along. Right. Well, and that's the big thing. I mean, uh, there's been so many trends in education. I don't know how we ever know how anything works because we're always changing our mind on how to do things. But um, I know that some schools are going towards even like uh, anti-homework, no homework policy, and I. I always, um, what, and, and I, you know, even even recently, teachers within my department like, well, we don't assign homework because the kids don't do it. But if you assign it and you hold them accountable and you know that, like, and the kids know that they're going 
have to do it, like, and you just hold that line. It takes a whole process to make sure that that system works. And I, I still feel like that's a valid, a valid point, especially in social studies and English, where, you know, there's just no sense in spending class time reading or getting down the basic materials that students can get on their own. And I feel like that doesn't prepare them for college at all. Like, it's not like you're going to go to college and not have homework. Yeah, because I, I I try to run my EP classes more like it would be in college, where you know you have to you have to know a lot of the stuff going into it, or you're going to be lost when we try to have a adult style conversation about these types of things, and that's that's where I've moved to. But the, you know, a lot of places and districts like the micromanage and things like that. Have you noticed a lot of difference in the the three different states you've taught in? Uh, not only three different states, I mean, I've taught in, uh, my first school that I taught in was an urban uh, city school, then I taught in a charter school, then I taught in a rural school in Kentucky for five years, uh, then I taught in a private school, and now I'm actually uh, teaching part-time at my alma mater school, which is full suburban, um, and that was the school I graduated from. Um, so I've noticed not just the difference in states, um, but differences in school districts and types of schools and in regions that you teach in. There's a vast difference between an inner city school environment and a suburban school environment um, as far as even barriers to teaching, barriers to learning for the students. Um, I did teach English for uh, one year, and that was in an urban school, and a lot of those kids couldn't even write sentences. So that was incredibly hard because I was trying to teach them how to write advanced essays and research papers, and they, a lot of my kids didn't even know the difference between a noun and a verb. So, um, what grade level was yeah, that? Uh, I think that was either freshman or sophomore in high school. Um, oh. And yeah. I don't remember if the English classes were honors or not. Um, that's a big difference too. If And that's really where, um, for me as a teacher that I always wanted to teach 
students and prepare them for college. And, and really, I teach history from a more philosophical point of view. And I've always done that, even in standard level classes. Um, I always have really high expectations of my students, and I have found the most success in school cultures and school environments in which um, that, that teacher is supported and the students see value in education and are willing to do the work. I mean, for the first time in 10 years, I teach at a school now. I started, um, and after my first week or two teaching there, I had students leaving me thank you notes for me coming to teach their class, for me, you know, acknowledging that I demanded more of them, but thanking me for, you know, just challenging them and helping prepare them for their, their future. And I had, I, all my years of teaching, I've never experienced that. Um, the willingness to work and, and the appreciation for how much work that I put in, even if I'm asking them to do work and how much they're growing and learning. Wow. So, that, I mean, that's, is, is that saying that, I mean, I, 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 that's, that's wonderful that that's going on. If they just had, a lack of good teachers before you got before they got to you in that in that district no no I wouldn't say it was a district issue so this year I came in um, I'm part-time um, because um, they had a long-term substitute before and I think the first uh, two or three months of the year it was kind of chaos um, so there was some issues with their permanent teacher I think that the permanent teacher uh, the senior teacher only came to school maybe a handful of times, and then they had a long-term substitute. So I wouldn't say it was something endemic in the district. Oh, it was. Um, it was more the individual class and the individual schools because we've had, we've had a run of bad things that happened. It was what probably would have been last year's senior class to where one of their English three teachers um, came in and just decided they they hire, it was a late hire and. Um, his name was Mr. Do, and it turned out he was Mr. Don't, because they went through. <laughs> he he quit and gave everybody hundreds and all the grade books before he left. Uh, obviously, he did not realize what he had gotten himself into. There was also some scheduling problems. His first period class had over forty kids in it, and I forgot our the English teaching coach stepped in for a while. They had a long term. It, it took him until the entire second semester before they hired somebody full time. And I think yeah. that same group had had that same problem with, you know, a couple of biology teachers that had left. They've had uh, teachers that left to go because they were pregnant, so they missed almost the entire second semester. Uh, we've had a couple of people dismissed for, you know, not unprofessional reasons. And it, it, it seemed to plague that certain group that graduated last year to where they were just happy that they had some stability once that took place. So I, I, I witnessed those fun things before as well. Yeah. Yeah. But that makes a big difference. I mean, I've, I've taught, um, so none of the classes I have this year are honors classes. Um, but I see in, in the students I have this year, um, really, to me, they're like many of my honors classes. I've come into honors classes before where it is an honors college prep based class and to ask them to do homework like they look at you like you've just clearly lost your mind and no one else gets this homework and who do you think you are <laughs> like what do you mean you're asking us to do things i have to earn my a what are you talking about don't be ridiculous hey, do you so, find do, uh, do you have a problem with cheating 
Um, I did once. I had, um, uh, so I feel like in honors classes, um, so I was an honors student myself. I always tell the students that, like, I know your games, and I know that you guys, right now you think what's really important is the grade, not what you learn. Um, and so I actually did catch a massive cheating a couple of years ago. In, in a, um, so I taught at a school in which you could, they started out, when I first started, the honors classes were wonderful. They were hardworking, like they just, you know, I didn't have to teach them a lot of basic skills. They had a lot of those things. And then somewhere along the line it changed and I found out that you used to have to test into the honors classes and then they switched it to you could request your way in and so what happened is a lot of students' parents wanted them to be in honors but the students themselves were not honors students, were not honors material, they didn't want to do the work and so they would just cheat to get the A, and I caught them doing it, and so I restructured the grading of my entire class. Like, I stopped, um, I did standards-based grading, and I thought I was going to have a mutiny on my hands, not only from the students, but from the parents, because in the school district, what had happened is this certain group of students whose parents were very locally connected, and it was a small community, um, really just had bullied their way bullied their kids way into success and if you were a teacher that stood in their way especially I was the outsider um they would just uh it was it was uh, politics at its worst let's just say that yeah that sounds like a lot of the stuff that we used to find out that went on in the uh, lovely private school world I actually had one of the head of schools tell me that, that a parent actually stopped her and was complaining that their child didn't have straight A's. And she said, do you think just because you're paying to go to school that your child deserves straight A's? And she and the parent looked at her straight in the face and said, yes. <laughs> yeah, um, I grew up in so St. Louis. I don't know if you know anything about uh, schooling in St. Louis, but St. Louis is one of the, um, we have the most private schools, I think, than almost any other city in the nation because, I mean, St. Louis has a lot of um, interesting social issues, let's put it that way. Um, and one of the things growing up here in St. Louis, I went to um, the school I went to, um, I always felt like it was a really good school. In fact, when I went to college, uh, my first year of college, I thought was easier and I thought some of my classes and my professors were a joke compared to my high school teachers. So I felt very well prepared for college and I felt like my high school really prepared me for an academic world, especially since I was the first one in my family to go to college. And, um, but then I, as I got out there more and, and saw other, other schools, I realized how lucky I was and how good my high school was because a lot of my family members um, had gone to private schools, and it was like me and my brother were like, "Oh well, you just go to that public school. Like, not it's not some big deal. Like, oh, so what if you do well in a public school? Public schools are a joke." Um, but after teaching in a private school in this area, I would say that um, that's a myth that private schools are better just because you pay for them. Because yes, I mean, like you mentioned before, in private schools. You don't even have to be certified to teach. I mean, I've taught in private schools that um, some of the teachers didn't have any background in education. Um, so, and there's also that extreme pressure coming from parents of, 
like even if you do well in a private school, sometimes that doesn't mean anything. If you have administration that's more concerned about enrollment versus academic achievement. Um, so, although at the same time, that being said, the private school that I taught at um, had a lot of money coming into the school. Not necessarily a lot of membership, but a lot of money coming into the school. And we got intensive professional development for two and a half hours every week. I was like, wow, at any other public school, if you told the teachers they had a two, two and a half hour meeting at the end of every Monday till five o'clock on professional development, integrating technology, integrating project-based and student-centered learning, like they would probably go on strike. <laughs> so, so um, you know, it's just every school environment is really, really unique. And it, it is highly dependent upon not only the students that go there, but the administration and the philosophy of the school. Yeah. Yeah, because we had um, the first private school I taught at, we had... We were we were we were even told at one point that our enrollment was getting really low, and they had done away with some of our retirement stuff that they're matching our retirement that we put away, and then they froze. My last year there, they froze the salary, and it was to the point where you had to basically destroy the school to get kicked out, and that was that was one of the reasons that was pushing me out that I didn't really want to stay there much any longer. And it was quite the opposite at the last school I left at that had a major endowment, and they also paid better than the public school system pretty much anywhere around. And they and they had a waiting list of kids to get in, but it was it wasn't like it was the most elite of private schools. But it was I I, I really think that I the people I taught with in middle school and the first school they were all in it. They 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 were a hundred percent in. They were not just killing time on planet earth sitting there at private school and almost all the ones in the second school were as well but i i was shocked that we had that good of educators at the first school that i was at being that we were struggling at that point there became a high turnover rate though so we we've actually there's a high turnover rate in any of the private schools i was ever at it was it's amazing how fast that you would see people come and go and like what what happened to so-and-so like they're gone so but, you know, we have that attrition rate at, at public school as well, just because of the other stresses that go on with the socioeconomic, the poor kids and things like that. Because when you start talking about inner city schools, what, what goes on down here is a lot of people that are affluent that live inside of Houston proper send their kids to private school. And so it turns HISD into more of a, 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 a low income setting. And then a lot of people that are moving back for gentrification of, of the city are pushing poorer kids out here to the suburbs. So we have an amazing amount of kids that are low income that live out in, you know, 30 miles away from downtown Houston. So it's kind of, it's kind of odd how that's changing, but that's, that's fun about teaching AP human geographies. That's kind of part of my curriculum too. So yeah, I'm, I'm learning, uh, so um, I think this is the first time that I've taught, uh, taught U.S. history twice, one at a pre-AP level um, with a very different curriculum, and then um, one at an honors level, but it was in Kentucky, and it was, I only had the kids for half a year, and I think it was my class of like eight seniors. So, um, so this is the first time this year that I'm really uh, have a focus on American history, and uh, teaching it in St. Louis, um, especially at the school district that I teach at, 
has been vastly interesting. We just finished our unit on the civil rights and school segregation. And actually, right before you called, I was uh, watching a documentary on the uh, Pruitt-Igo housing complex that was built in St. Louis that was supposed to be like the model example for urban, low-income, high-rise housing. And they ended up having to blow it up. (laughs) It was such a disaster. So um, that has been a very interesting study. And actually, one of the things I'm doing um, with my students and uh, the two programs that I'm a part of, so I'm a part-time teacher at the high school that I graduated from, which just three years ago, um, we actually made the local and then thus the national news for issues of segregation. um, Because in St. Louis, we are a very de facto uh, segregated city. Um, We have, you know, all of... uh, White flight is very real here, and most of um, the white middle class has moved out, not only um, out of downtown St. Louis into the St. Louis suburbs, but actually out of the St. Louis suburbs into the county suburbs surrounding. Um, And that's the high school that I teach at, and that's the high school that I graduated, and those are the areas that I lived in. But I do, um, I actually live in the suburbs of St. Louis, because I didn't want to move back to St. Charles County. One of the reasons of it was not quite diverse enough for me after I've been all the way around the world. And um, I do a diversity program at a middle school um, in St. Louis. And so I'm actually part of my project-based learning initiative in my class right now is my freshman students from my high school in the suburbs um, is going to have a town hall forum via Skype with uh, my inner city school students and uh, just talk to each other about um, the stereotypes that they might have of suburban versus urban kids and what their schools are like. And um, So I'm pretty excited about that project um, that should be happening in the next couple weeks. But uh, that has been a super interesting and I, I mean very engaging uh, lesson for me being from St. Louis and growing up in St. Louis and then being able to relate some of these big issues uh, that happened in American history and how St. Louis was, how much St. Louis was affected by all those different sins and how we still live with the consequence of it this day. Was that the story that was on NBC about the, there's some sort of actual line that's in the city where it was segregated? Yeah. From, that was it? It's wow. the Delmar Divide. Yeah, I saw so, that. And if, you, and if you listen to Nellie, um, who is from St. Louis, you can hear him singing about the different streets and neighborhoods in St. Louis. Uh, but yeah, so it's Delmar is this really cool street. There's a lot of cool shops and restaurants there. They just put in um, a streetcar now, an electric streetcar, old-fashioned streetcar to run up and down the street. Um, but north of the line is, is very um, poor, urban, mostly uh, minorities, mostly black and then south of the line is super wealthy, um, you know. So when we talk to you know the kids about that, some of, some kids know know about it and know what it's about, especially if they're from north of the line. Um, so it's really interesting. One of the students in my suburban school, he actually went to an urban school in his elementary school years, and uh, he knew all about that. And of course, he was a black student and. The most suburban school, I mean, you know, they're uh, still uh, still a pretty big minority 
for black students there, and he knew all about the Del Mar Divide and um, the U City, uh, University City uh, High School and uh, system, which used to be one of the best schools in the country, uh, like 1950, St. Louis, like, it's, it's interesting how we, at, in the beginning, St. Louis, like, embraced segregation, and we were, like, a model of how desegregation, or we embraced desegregation, and we were a model of how desegregation should work, um, and University City was one of the best schools in the nation, and now, like, they have great elementary schools, but by the time it gets to high school, um, all the wealthy families on the, you know, wealthy side of that Del Mar divide pull their kids out and put them in private schools, or they move out to the suburbs where they can go to higher-rated schools, so. Wow. Uh, how much has it changed since, since you went to school there? Has the demographics uh, changed? high school? Yeah. The demographics? Um, I would say it's more diverse than when I went to school. Like, I mean, really, all honesty, I can maybe only recall a handful of black students and Indian and Asian students. Um, now it is more, it is much more diverse, but it's still predominantly, um, it is in St. Charles County, and St. Charles County is predominantly middle to upper middle class and white. So, um, and, and it's still a thing, like even the neighborhood that I live in um, is in St. Louis County, but um, and the street that I live on, I guess, is, I guess about probably half white. But I mean, I've heard like the neighbor that used to live right next door to me, like some of the things he would say, I was like, whoa, dude. <laughs> Here, wow, that's amazing. And then, so when he moved, I wasn't all that sad, um, especially because, you know, um, uh, a nice Asian woman bought his house <laughs> when he left. But um, it's, it's still an endemic, um, deep-seated thing that's in the culture of St. Louis. Um, and the, the separation of our neighborhoods in when diversity moves in, a lot of um, money and, and the white population, the white flight is definitely a real thing that people move out of the neighborhood because they're afraid that crime is going to move in. Um, so. Yeah, I had a, we had a neighbor that, that this is a realtor that used to live about five, six houses away, and we are walking the dogs one time, and he talked about he was, he was selling his house and moving into a gated community close down or about, probably about 15 miles from here in Spring Branch. And we asked him why, and he did the look that racist people like to do, turning make sure nobody was around, and just yelled, have you seen how ethnic this neighborhood has gotten? And I was like, I'm standing out in the middle of the street here, and I don't really have any white neighbors around. So um, I, I wish he hadn't included me in, like, you know, we're on the same team here, buddy. I can't believe you're not moving. And I'm like, no. Because the odd thing is when people come out to this area in Cyprus, 30, 40 years ago, it was almost all white. And the school that me and my wife teach at is only 10% white. And there's about five schools like that out here in the suburbs that are in that 10 to 15 percent range and, and the even the highest percentage of all of white students 
at any of the schools is, I think it's 56. I, we do demographics in human geography, so I broke down all the schools and put the names on them, had them guess what school is which, and they were pretty wrong about most of them because I think 58 or 59% white is the whitest it gets out here in, in, in suburban. Wow. And people just don't think about that anymore because uh, we passed New York for the most culturally diverse city in America four years ago. So, you know, we get a lot. I, I had a class three, four years ago that had 30 different countries represented from it where their parents had been from. Grand, I let a few of them go back to grandparents because one girl had, she was, she was what I used to call my perfect multicultural student because she legitimately was a quarter black, a quarter white, a quarter Hispanic, and a quarter Japanese. And there was some other Native American stuff mixed in there as well. Her grandmother in Japan was still in Japan. And it, when, like, when she went to get a driver's license, she came and told me, it's, oh, we have the exact same birthday, so we kept in touch all throughout that time. But she, she went to get a driver's license here in Texas and checked all the boxes for ethnicity and race. And, and they were like, you can't do that. You have to pick one. She goes, I can't. I, I'm not a dominant anything. And they're supposed to be fixing that here by 2020. So it, it's, I, I spent a lot of time talking about that kind of stuff at school. And it's kind of fun. Sometimes I just sit there and go, they actually are paying me to talk about these types of things that I like to talk about anyway. Right, right. So are we getting close to your your time where you have to go because the fam's coming home? Yeah, yeah, they'll be coming home pretty soon. And then, you know, even though I'm on spring break, it's uh, uh, back to work. Actually, I spent most of my spring break uh, applying for, uh, since I, I hired in late at my school, I have to uh, reapply for my job, uh, which hasn't been posted yet. So I've been applying for some other other jobs uh, in the area as well. So most of my spring break has been like pretty much working, but not at the feverish pace that has been most of this year. So, um, but we can always do this again sometime if, if you have more questions and things you want to know. And there's a good chance that um, I don't know for sure if I'm going to be at the same school uh, starting in the fall or if I'm going to end up going to another uh, full time position at a different school, so that could add some more uh, dynamics for you to talk about. Uh, one of the schools that I was looking at, I think you would find this interesting, um, and I was really excited about this, is that um, it is like the best school in St. Louis, and it is a public school, um, and it's in a good neighborhood, but it has a really great school culture, you know, like homework is expected, um, everything college preparatory, um, but the class that they, they teach instead of world history or U.S. history, it's uh, integrated world and U.S. history, imperialism to the present. And uh, just finding that out and like, oh, I'm in love. <laughs> yeah, so uh, American history that's not ethnocentric and taught the way it should have been taught all along. <laughs> I think we'd be a great fit for each other. Yeah, oh, that that, so, that sounds like something that I, that that would be up your alley. It's it's just amazing because I mean a, a lot of people don't understand what how a lot of our hands are tied about things we can and cannot talk about. I'm just excited about the AP curriculum because you do have the opportunity to go into areas that the state doesn't really like to regulate. I, I still need to find somebody in Oklahoma because. I was told that Oklahoma does no longer offer AP uh, American history because it talked too 
unfavorably about the slavery in the South. Oh, that's hilarious. Well, I thought, you know, I, I'm not a huge, um, like, I like AP because it gives students that it is more collegiate. Um, I think, and, and this is probably shaped by my own high school experience, and my high school, we had dual credit classes um, that wasn't all hinged upon whether or not we could pass the test at the end. And so I, what I've seen a lot from a lot of AP teachers is they have to spend a lot of time preparing kids for the test. Which is not necessarily something I want to do. I want to get enough master's classes in history underneath my belt so I can just teach dual credit. Um, but being able to teach from that um, collegiate perspective is really important. And it, sometimes people will say, oh, of course, that's what we want you to teach. And then when it comes to those things actually being taught, the uh, charter school that I taught at was an international baccalaureate school, very diverse. You would think very um, open-minded, very, very collegiate, very internationally based. You know, you would think it would be a very liberal school. Uh, come to find out, even though um, it was a good school, it was still in the heart of Evansville, Indiana, and it was deeply, deeply, deeply conservative. Um, and so some of the things, even though I was teaching from an AP textbook, and teaching, I mean, this textbook was great. It was very much, um, I was really surprised the first time I went to National Council for the Social Studies um, and, and hearing, I, it's always it's always my goal as a history teacher to give voice to the voiceless. So I spend a lot of time talking about uh, the other side of history, you know, the people that don't always and haven't traditionally had their story told, so the minorities, the poor, the women, um, things like that. And uh, it was amazing to me when I went to National Council for the Social Studies and when I was first finding out about Howard Zinn and the, the people's uh, history of the United States and how that was controversial to people. Um, I remember one of the girls that went with us on our Fulbright trip that did that presentation for the Ottoman Empire. Um, she was actually from Kansas or Nebraska. I can't remember which. And she taught there. And uh, there was even a presentation they were doing on Native American um, side of history. And I was like, oh, I definitely want to go see that. And I was really surprised. And I was talking to her. And I was like, I can't believe there were people that were upset and, like, walking out. Like, we're history. We're social studies teachers. And she's like, oh, no, you have no idea. <laughs> like, this is so controversial. And to me, like, there's a certain things within our field as professionals in our field, I'm surprised that they're controversial. Um, so, yeah, there is yeah, that. The, yeah, I, I, I see. I, I, I don't get shocked anymore, but I, I, I at least find that social studies teachers, because of what the content that we teach, more so than other other subjects, that there's there's a lot more open mindedness that goes on there as opposed to. But you'll find in places that are just isolated doing the, the you know, things that, that don't talk about culture and diversity and ethnicity and all that kind of fun stuff. Because it, I, I witnessed some things at, I've been to, I think, four in the National Council for Social Studies events. And uh, yeah, I, I was shocked. There were some people from the South, from the Deep South, that was after one of the presenters that I watched. And I just turned around and wanted to go, I, I, I literally apologized to the presenter 
behalf of everybody that's ever lived in the South for what that woman had said, because it was just, it was kind of scary. And I, there's some good old boys in our our district too that I just stay away from. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get in that fight anymore because it's just it's just wild. But yeah, the the DC thing, I I'm not certified in dual credit. My wife would love me to go back, but I. I see the end in sight in five years, and I'm not going to spend the time to get to teach it for a, a year or two. I mean, maybe if something comes up in the future, and that's that's my my future life. But yeah, we we actually are implementing something that you'd find find interesting is that we are supposed to next year going to have a class of of uh, dual credit um, government kids that are going to get on a bus and go over to Lone Star College a few miles away and take the class and literally take it at college during the school day. Oh, wow. That, yeah, that's nice. Because then, then, like you say, then there's no test. I mean, how can you take a class? It, it, it is a difficult thing in AP to watch the kids take a class for an entire school year and go, you know, it, it's all or nothing whether or not you get college credit. And for AP Psych, I don't feel bad because it's a semester and some of them are taking it because they don't want to, it's just an elective they want to take. Some of my students that are fans of me take it just because I'm teaching it, which is flattering and sometimes irritating. But, you know, it, it dual credit is, is probably the best way. And we're looking at doing STEM stuff in our district to where uh, they want to eventually have every child that graduates from school already have an associate's degree from college. So... We'll see how that's going. I don't know if I'll be around for all that to be implemented. What, what, about, what about kids that aren't going to go to college? Like, what about, because uh, I know in Kentucky that was a big thing, college and career ready, so they wanted them to be, either have college credit under their belt or to have, like, some sort of trade license so that they could go right out into the workforce. Is that... Yeah, we, we do some... Yeah, we do some of that. They have um, they have the welding and auto mechanics and stuff like that. They also do it through Lone Star College, and uh, like I said, Lone Star College is maybe three miles away, the main campus, because it's there's uh, satellite campuses all around the the district, and uh, that that's what they're looking at too. Because I mean, I, we sit here and go to stuff in the district with for economic teachers and things, and I've listened to them talk about the fact that there's there's lots of very well paying open jobs sitting around that people have to you know work outdoors and get dirty and don't go to college for that are sitting unfilled because we have this crazy idea that every child has to go to college and it's 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 blowing up in our faces when we look at those types of things the one thing they did they did tell us about though is the kids have to when they get those kind of jobs they have to show up on time show up, they don't have all the sick time or they are calling because they don't feel like going to work. And then they have to be able to pass a random drug test for a lot of them because they're operating machinery, equipment, stuff at the Port of Houston, some of the transportation things that go along with it, moving big equipment. And a lot of the youngsters can't pass those drug tests anymore. Yeah. So, well, I will let you run because we're, we're, getting, we're getting close to the hour mark and I, I'm finding out that some of my some of my people don't like to listen to the longest of all the long ones. And I could probably sit here and talk to you for another hour about this stuff. So, uh, well, thank you, Anastasia, for coming on and, and talking to us about life. But I'm fascinated. I didn't realize you'd been in three states. I, I tried to keep up. I tried to do my homework and read what little you have on your Facebook page while we've been talking. But, you Although, know. Uh, I, I, one other thing I've learned in, in teaching, and I, I've 
feel like I've learned this just within when I taught at my the private school is I avoid Facebook now like the plague. <laughs> so I keep my private life private. I've learned that that's uh, that's sometimes a better choice when it comes to being a school teacher. So yeah, private school it kind of started to bite me in the butt about anything I might say or Instagram or because it, it got to be where the students were following me so all of my stuff was is locked out now in our school now is currently really big in the tweets and hashtagging stuff about Twitter I'm like my Twitter's private for a reason because you have to be my friend so is my Instagram because I had kids find me and it like I said it, it leads to nothing but trouble so right I, right. I, I stay away from all that time off too. yeah <laughs> Well, thanks for talking, and I, I, I promise to keep in touch, and I will let you know when some other fun subjects come up and you have some free time to talk, and and thanks a lot. Hey, no problem. Anytime. <laughs> All right. I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, fans. That was my, you know, distant friend, Anastasia there, talking about her life in... Uh, three different states and that was quite interesting i said i i stopped at her fulbright ottoman empire uh got, thank you dogs for barking at her ottoman empire discussion that was going on and she had a wonderful powerpoint that was she had that she was giving away to people and talking to us about stuff and i mean just lots and lots of pictures like i said that used to be on on her Facebook profile and stuff like that. And, and we became Facebook friends after that and had a business card. And it's just, she's a very interesting person to talk to and uh, keep in touch with because she's very academic and, and I was interested in her journey and her story. So not to make this the longest podcast in the entire world. I realized the phone connection was a little rough at some of the times. I'll see what I can do about cleaning some of that up. I, I know that it might be kind of loud on my side because I, I had to kind of crank up where the uh, the volume was on the microphone so I could get her. And I was trying to stay as far away from the microphone as possible. But thank you for listening. I believe this is our 17th episode of Teachers Talking to Teachers. Um, Remember, uh, it's on all the platforms you want to listen to. Spread the word if you hear about it. If you want to email me about this, you can email me at teacherst2t at gmail.com. And uh, the doggies are coming in the room. Wish I had some music for this one, but we're running out of time. And I need to clean this up a little bit. And I need to go get something to eat myself because... You know, I appreciate, the, you know, she's told me she, she only had about 20 or 30 minutes and we're getting close to an hour. So thanks a lot, folks, for uh, for listening. And, um, you know, we'll be back uh, as soon as I can get somebody else on here. Mm-hmm.